This Dharma talk by Joan Sutherland Roshi, Vermeer's Peace, a Cohen Seminar Introduction, was given at Springs Mountain Sangha in Colorado Springs, Colorado, on April 28, 2006. I'm going to talk for a little bit longer than usual tonight because we have a fair number of people for whom this way of working um, with koans is uh, either brand new or, or pretty newish. So I'm going to begin with a story that some of you have heard before, but remains the best way I know to really try to um, say something intelligent about, about koans and how they work. In the 17th century in Europe, in the first part of the century, there was the Thirty Years' War. So it was pretty much constant warfare and religious persecutions and refugees. It was a tumultuous and difficult time. And um, given the lifespan of people at the time, it was what most people knew as life. People didn't have a whole lot else to go by. Around the middle of the century, the wars finally came to their end, and people shrugged and sighed and went home and had this task of figuring out how to rebuild a continent when most of them had only ever known warfare. Up in the northern parts, there was a group of painters, the most famous now of whom was Jan Vermeer, who took up this interesting question about peace. What does peace look like? What does it feel like? And um, Vermeer painted those paintings many of us have come to love, of a, a sturdy woman standing in a kitchen illuminated by a shaft of light from a window, very calm, full of light, or two people uh, behind a doorway, talking quietly to each other. Or a cityscape glistening with rain, the clouds just having parted above it. And it seems to me that what Vermeer was doing in those paintings was not depicting peace, describing peace, portraying it. He was really trying to invoke peace into a world that hadn't known it for a very long time. And not just in the world in general, but in the specific and particular hearts of the people who looked at those paintings. As though his hope were that the viewer would ask, what is this, this piece? What does it feel like? What can I do to make more of it in the world? Lawrence Wechsler wrote a, a wonderful essay called Vermeer in Bosnia. And he talked about um, meeting with one of the judges at the Yugoslav war crimes trials in The Hague. And he asked him how he dealt with the daily diet of really horrible things that came across his desk as a war crimes judge. And he said, every chance I get, I go across the river to a little gallery where there's a room full of Vermeers, and I just sit in that room for my lunch hour. So there's a sense that 350 years later, those paintings are still capable of invoking peace in a troubled heart. 
koans began in China at a time that had many similarities to the Thirty Years' War in Europe. Um, it was the 8th century, and there was a rebellion that led to famine, that led to more civil war. And in a period of about 10 years in the mid-8th century, two-thirds of the people in China died. This is when koans were born. Koans were born essentially as a response to this time, um, as a way of taking up a question, which was, we one in three who survived, how do we go on? And how do we rebuild a country? The move that the koans make is more towards freedom than peace. Koans many times, often, maybe, you know, foundationally, are trying to invoke freedom in your heart in the same way that Vermeer's paintings were trying to invoke peace in his viewers' hearts. If you have difficulty with a koan, if a koan doesn't make sense to you or it feels kind of impermeable, one way in is to ask, what is the freedom here? What is the free move? What kind of freedom is being pointed to? Or what kind of freedom might be possible in this situation? So that to me is, um, that's the basis. That's what koans are for. And I'll just say a couple of more things about how they work on us and how we work with them. Last night I was talking about the difference between explanations and metaphors. And I talked about how metaphors, by their nature, connect things, break down <coughs> barriers and categories, and make new connections that, that, that send us in surprising directions. Koans work very much like that as well, the body of koans. There's no place in this tradition where there's a um, bullet list of, for instance, what compassion is, you know? But what there are are instances of compassion, as Vermeer painted instances of peace. So you have Pangling Zhao falling down next to her father as an instance of compassion. For those of you who don't know the story, um, Layman Pong was carrying a bunch of baskets and coming down off a bridge, he tripped and fell to the ground. And his daughter, Ling Zhao, seeing this, rushed over and threw herself onto the ground beside him. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, I saw you fall, so I'm helping. And uh, Layman Pong said, luckily no one is looking. So that's an instance of compassion in the koans, that I saw you fall, so I'm helping. Another one is the koan um, in which it's asked, the bodhisattva of compassion, Guan Yin, how does she use all those hands and eyes? Guan Yin is often shown with many hands and many eyes because of the, you know, the, the many activities of compassion in the world. And the answer in that koan is, it's just like someone in the middle of the night reaching behind her head for the pillow. Something that natural, something that simple, 
something that familiar to us as half asleep reaching behind your head for the pillow in the middle of the night. That too is compassion. So you have one instance and another instance and you lay them next to each other and then you have another and another and another. And that's how the koans work, by juxtaposition, by the metaphorical connections between things. None of them is the one sole right answer. Compassion is all of those things and what is made with all of those things. And a further thing, too, which is your response to the koans. How you respond becomes part of this growing field of the koan. They're not just words on paper. They're one thing and another thing and another thing added, and then you add that your um, view of them, your understanding of them, and it grows and grows, and it's been growing for 1,200 years like that. It's a huge, vast field, the koan field. So um, that's how we work with the koans. We take our cue from how they themselves work. If they work by juxtaposition, if they work by metaphor, if they say it's like this and like this and like this, that's what we'll do. We'll add our, our voices saying it's like this and like this and like this. And slowly together we will build a sense of what each koan is this night in this place. Another night, another place, it would be something different. Another time in your life, it will be something different to you. So um, that's how they work on us, a little bit about how they work on us, and a word or two about how we work with them in, the, in these koan seminars. Um, the first thing is that there are no answers to these koans. There are only responses, and that's tremendously important. So don't worry that you have to come up with um, the answer or a brilliant answer or a dazzling answer. Take a risk. Be willing to be foolish. Sometimes the most beautiful mistakes come out when somebody takes a risk and is willing to be foolish. And don't worry about an answer. There isn't. There's only a field of response. Um, and the other thing is, I, I sort of hinted at this at the beginning when I said, if a koan feels difficult to you or impermeable in some way, look for the freedom and see if that's a way in, for the invitation to freedom somewhere in the koan. Sometimes koans are impenetrable <laughs> and um, frustrating and off-putting. If you have a reaction of... Um, fear or frustration or boredom or irritation, whatever it is, that's your first response to the koan, okay? That's right there. You're already in relationship with that koan. Don't throw that away. That's as valuable as anything else if you stay with it. Oh, that's interesting. I hate this. <laughs> Why? Why do I hate this? What, what does it feel like in my body? You know, what, what does it bring up for me? And, and allow yourself as fearlessly as you can to follow that line of inquiry and see where it goes. So, um, you know, back to Lingy's There Is Nothing I Dislike. Turn that There Is Nothing I Dislike to your own responses to the koan. And I'm not saying leave it there if your first reaction is, oh, yuck. Do some inquiry. See if that moves anywhere, okay? And if it doesn't, then that's your response to the koan, this night, in this place. 
and it might be different another time. So I think that's what I wanted to say to begin. During that time, the country was um, kind of shell-shocked. Everybody was in a sort of state of shock by what had happened. And a lot of people were uh, actually sort of fleeing to the monasteries to find a way out, a way not to experience what was happening. Um, sometimes even just a way to get a, a, a reliable meal. you know. And um, Great Master Ma, who is the first teacher whose dialogues with, with his students are koans, become koans, um, really was saying, no escape hatch here. There's no sort of, you know, spiritual la-la land I'm going to offer you. Um, we have to cope with this. And Ma's style was so direct. He's, he's sort of the first teacher who, who is known for hitting his students and shouting at them and doing all that stuff that becomes a kind of stereotype in Zen later. But in the context of the time, I find, I find that quite moving, actually, because any time someone would take the stance of a student with him, he would whack him. You know, he would knock him over. He, he was basically saying, although he never said it in words, but in actions, we cannot afford for you not to know your self-nature. We cannot afford for you, for you to take the stance of the student. You have to get clear right now about who you are and what it means to be alive and what you're going to do to help. Um, so that was his ferocity. And, and Ma was a man who walked through we know, walked through that horrible time of death and destruction. For 20 years he was on the road while all that was going on. So he saw it firsthand. I don't think all koans do the same thing. I think koans are an extremely differentiated technology. Um, that the koans are an extremely differentiated technology. They're very subtle and, and, and they, they light up different aspects of the field of human life. Having said that, in general, the invitation is to freedom because the deep trust of the koans is that the freer you are, the more compassionate you will be. That, that when we strip away those things which obscure our freedom, what will be left will look an awful lot like compassion that that looks pretty much like the ground on which we stand. Does that make sense? Yes. That's the relationship between freedom and compassion. Okay, let's do it. These talks are made available through your donations to Cloud Dragon, the Joan Sutherland Dharma Works. To learn more about her teachings and to make a tax-deductible contribution, please visit our donate page at joansutherlanddharmaworks.org.